What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm a head of programming, Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Tim Marshall, the journalist turned author, has reported from all over the world for outlets including the BBC and Sky News, the latter of which he spent over two decades at in roles including diplomatic editor and Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem. And that worldly view has fed into Tim's writing. In recent years, his best-selling books based around geography have found a huge audience of those wanting to better make sense of how it shapes the globe. The first was Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that explain everything about our world. And Tim has since followed it up with titles including Divided, Why We're Living in an Age of Walls, Power of Geography, and the newly released The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World. Recently, Tim joined journalist and presenter Ridla Shah for an Intelligence Squared live event, How Geography Explains Our World at London's Conway Hall. It was a packed house and Tim answered questions on topics ranging from the lay of the land on planet Earth to how we can map out outer space and he also reflected on the crisis in Israel and Gaza, a location he spent years reporting from. There's a lot to fit in, so this one is coming to you in two halves. If you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get the whole thing right now no waiting around. Head to intelligencesquare.com slash membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of this chat plus all of our extra content, ad-free listening and updates on our live events like the one you're about to hear too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Let's join Tim Marshall and our host Riddle Shah now with more. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Tim Marshall. Tim's had a career of two equally impressive parts. He's reported from 40 countries, including Croatia, Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Israel. But more recently, his second career is as the author of books I've spotted on bookshelves and bars and coffee shops all over the world. Tell me the titles of your books, Tim. Dirty Northern Bastards <laughs> is the one I'm most proud of. A history of Leeds United, perhaps? Well. It's the history of British football champs. Yeah. Anyway, three really good books. The latest one is called The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World. So I hope, Tim, tonight we can actually draw on that great breadth of experience and knowledge that you bring to this conversation. Um, 
The latest one about space, we'll get into that too, and some of the imminent, actually, challenges facing global relations. And a reminder to all of you, we're going to chat for about an hour or so. There will be plenty of time for your questions, so do keep a note of anything you'd like to ask Tim, both in the room and online. Down here in the room, there'll be um, roving mics. Up there, I think there are microphones on either side of the balcony. And if you're online, you can click the Q&A button and uh, stick your question in under the video screen and press send, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Right, so, Tim, not much going on in the world right now. A couple of wars, perhaps more than a couple, actually. The limits of US power being tested. Extraordinary relationship developing between Russia and China, North Korea, unpredictable, just a few bits and bobs. Um, so we can have this conversation, though, within the framework of your thinking. How do you think that we can think about any of these ongoing events, pick one of your choice, and really make this argument that geography matters? Oh, um, before I do that, um, thank you to Intelligence Squared, and thank you for giving up this beautiful, balmy, early spring evening. Um, the best example, really, is Russia-Ukraine, uh, of how geography is such a, an important part of what happens. I'm not a geographic determinist. You know, there are many elements to, to, to why stuff happens. But if you don't get geography, you're missing a big part of that picture. So there are perhaps asinine examples um, when Henry VIII decided he wanted a navy his courtiers could say yes sir because we've got loads of trees yeah, if we'd happened to be in Somaliland fewer trees so there's an asinine example but a modern one is the geography of Russia and then the history that played out on that geography which brings us to the North European plain. Begins in France, sweeps across Northern Europe and into Russia. Its narrowest point was Poland. Uh, they've got the Baltic there, Carpathian Mountains there. So if you wanted to go to Russia, you're not going to swim there, you're not going to climb there. You're going to go through that gap, that 300-mile-hour gap. It then opens up to the flatland in front of Russia, in front particularly of its two centres of gravity, St. Petersburg and Moscow. So that's the physical geography of the place. And in front of those two cities is Belarus and Ukraine, mm -hmm. mostly flat. So that's the geography of it. Now, the history of it is that in the Russian head, and this did happen, but in the Russian mind, and think of it from Russian terms, you're looking westward, and from that direction, through that gap, has come the Polish-Lithuanian troops that invaded Russia has come the Swedish uh, Empire, which invaded through that gap. Napoleon, 1812. The Germans, 1914. The Germans, 1941. And those are just some of the examples. So think what that does to you. You're aware of the geography, you're aware of the gap, you're aware of the history that has happened. Consequently, you will seek to plug that gap, either by having Poland as an ally, which is complicated, or occupying it, which was the usual solution come all the way up to 89-91, and the Poles, like every single other country, decided, you know, what, well, we'd really like to have a different version of the future, and looked westward. So they've lost the gap. You fall back to the flat ground in front of you as a buffer zone, Belarus, Ukraine. 
And Belarus is nailed on. But when Ukraine flips and decides it wants a different future, at that point, the alarm bells are going off left, right, and center for a number of reasons, not least of which your only warm water port, which you have on lease from Ukraine, is down in Crimea. You've only got 30 years left on the lease. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things going on. There's, there's the nationalism. There's the seeking to undermine the post-Second World War order, the rules-based system, which was manufactured by America. And China and Russia set out at the beginning of this century to undermine that, and they've done it quite successfully. So there's a whole bunch of other things, but that's the geographic underpinning of why Putin has acted the way he has. And he can sell this story very easily to the Russian public because they remember all those historic dates that I said. They're looking westwards, and he's telling them, if we don't do this, the barbarians will be at the gates again. And just to clarify a point that you made, you're not a geographic determinist because you do recognise that Putin is very aware of, of history, of law, of all kinds of other things, that the rise of the yeah. West and the Western order and things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he wants the minerals that, that are in Ukraine. There's underreported. There's a lot of quite precious minerals. The land, the wheat, uh, the ports, Odessa. Uh, there's the nationalism. If you read his essay uh, from the summer before the invasion... Uh, he appears to believe all sorts of strange things like the superiority of the Slavic soul. It is superior to non-Slavic people's souls. And that as the Ukrainians are really Russian and Slavic, we must... You know, there's all that stuff. There's the, the, um, the, the third Rome idea, which he buys uh, after Rome, uh, and the schism of the Catholic Church, and then Constantinople and the breakup and then the Eastern Orthodox and the rest of it, well, the third true Rome, a true Christianity, is Moscow. So there's all that stuff. But the one that is, I believe, really a big part of it is the geography of it. Holding that thought in mind then, let's think about the death of Alexei Navalny, a long-time figurehead of the Russian opposition. What do you think his death tells us about Putin and Russia under Putin? that he's now confident that um, he's, he's sewn it up, he's sewn everything up. I was um, arguing uh, in a forum a few weeks ago before Navalny's death, um, the only thing, there's two things to watch for in the March election when he gets re-elected president. It's the scale of the victory, which will be by their choice. You know, it's, mm. it's not uh, how many votes, it's who counts the votes. But the other thing to look for is the scale of opposition on the streets. Now, I suspect there'll be very little. Because you might remember back in 2010, there were tens of, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, because there was still the element of Russia that was prepared to stand up and say, no, I think, I think it's been crushed. Now, you've seen the things about Navalny. It, it's just a few dozen people. Putting here. flowers and being yeah, and extraordinarily getting brave. Being yes. Extraordinarily brave. And so there is, that, that remains, but he's got away with it completely. And I suspect that after the election, we're not going to see tens of thousands on the street. So, sorry, so the point being, I think what it has told us is that he feels confident enough that he can kill the leader of the opposition, essentially, uh, one way or another, either with Novichok or I'm just going to make sure you die over a period of time. I mean, we don't know which way it was. Oh. His mother saw the body today, so we might know more soon. Um, no, he, he's got it sewn up. Uh, he got rid of... He got rid of um, Boris Nemtsov. Yes. Well, the list is long. Yes, and the amount of people that fall out of windows in Russia is 
Astonishing. They really should have health and safety. Have a look at it. <laughs> it's called Putinitis. Litvinenko, Politkovskaya. Yes, it is a really long and depressing list. So we've talked a little bit about why you think Putin may have invaded Ukraine. But were you surprised then by the strength of the Western response? Uh, we may not be not quite there now. Not as surprised as he was. Yes. Yeah, I'll admit I was. Um, Putin and Xi in China both believe quite strongly that the West is in terminal decline and is weak and has no spirit anymore. Uh, aided by things like Macron saying in 2018 NATO is brain dead, which it wasn't, but it, it was on life support. And it's been jolted back into life, proper life, by this act. And I think it's because of the scale of it. Georgia? Yeah, okay, it's Georgia. Um, Crimea, though? Well, uh, well, even Crimea, I think, because that was little green men um, in 80% Russian speaking. I'm not justifying it. I'm just, no, you know, but it's interesting. It's the, it's the context. Uh, so Crimea um, inserting themselves into Syria in the vacuum that was left by the Obama administration. Um, and then the sanctions. I mean, they've got PhDs in getting around sanctions. They learned it from the Iranians. So, he just, I think he just felt that now is the time. And my personal theory is that both the kerfuffle that there was over Taiwan after Nancy Pelosi went uh, and uh, Ukraine, it, they, they both followed the withdrawal. No, let me rephrase that. The running away from Afghanistan. It's it was officially term. called a withdrawal. No, it's a military term. <laughs> um, when we beat a strategic withdrawal from <laughs> Afghanistan. The way I explain it is that um, it's the same as, as uh, when you're kids and fighting or whatever. If, someone, if you're prodding someone in the chest and they're moving backwards and you think this is the moment, you keep... I personally don't. So I just... I knew they would be tested. I knew... I didn't know exactly where, when, what. I just knew that both of these big powers are going to test the Americans because they think they're on the back foot. And Putin prodded them in the chest in Ukraine, and he got an almighty shock. Not only did the EU find uh, a raison d'etre, but so did NATO. And uh, I think he was shocked both at the ineptitude of his own forces and, then, and the brilliance of the, and bravery of the Ukrainian forces, and then the mostly Western. I don't particularly like the term Western. It, it still is a thing. But in the modern, in the 21st century, it's more the advanced industrialized democracies, because then we have Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and India uh, in. Um, but as, as you know, uh, two years down the line, it, it's that faltering. Is, uh, it's more than faltering. It's, uh, are you, it's cracking. Uh, that withdrawal this week from, I can never say it, Adivika. Ad, Usual spelling, yeah. Um, it's. it's a sign of the the, the 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 great fault lines that are emerging. Every every, every index is going in the wrong direction. Um, the lack of congressional support. At, at in the least US. at least they. I mean, last year they, for symbolic reasons, lost several thousand troops holding onto a town, mm -hmm. which had little strategic value. But symbolically... It's a bit like Dunkirk, you know. What a fantastic victory that was for the British. That's <laughs> how we think of it. <laughs> you know, absolute disarray retreat, thousands killed, but, you know, Dunkirk. Um, so they tried to hold it, they didn't. 
um, at least this time they said, we're not going to spend all their lives. And the reason for that is that the Russians hold a four-to-one uh, advantage when it comes to how many lives they'll throw away. They hold a five-to-one advantage on um, missiles. Mm. And the difference is that at the beginning, they were World War II nonsense, but they've put their economy on a war footing and they're churning out the missiles almost faster than they can fire them. Whereas Ukraine is every month, you know, they're almost, they're almost running on empty and then they get some more. And that's another one of the indicators. So manpower, missile power, GDP is four times Ukraine's. Um, and then we've got this problem with the Congress, which, which for internal reasons, then we've, we've got, and this is the biggest part of the whole equation. Within about five days of not taking Kyiv, Putin looked at his watch and said, how long have we got till the American election? Yeah. Right, we've got to hang on till then. So they've been running to the US election clock for two years now and praying that Putin, uh, that, um, they're easy to mix up, aren't they? <laughs> that, that, that Trump uh, wins, um, pulls the rug from underneath Zelensky, at which point the Italians say, well, you know, the French, the Germans, uh, Portuguese, the Greece, Greeks, most, most countries uh, say, what's the point? Leaving Britain, Poland, Czech Republic, and the three Baltic states, yes. and maybe Sweden. It's simply nowhere near enough. America has put in more than all the EU countries and Britain combined. So if the Americans pull it, and the rest of them pull it, you are just throwing bad, good money after bad. You could, that's a bad phrase because I think it's a cause worth putting money into. Um, at which point, sorry, this is coming to the end game of Ukraine. And this is based on Biden losing and Trump winning. Um, Biden has this phrase, nothing about the Ukraine without Ukraine. It's a great phrase. It's rubbish. Absolute nonsense. The Americans will force the deal at a time of their choosing if they, if they so choose. And if they pull the rug, they will go and through themselves or interlocutors and say, you've got to go to the table now. But irrespective of who wins that election, isn't that time coming nearer? Yes, but I think... Yes, I think it is. Um, the majority of Republican congressmen and women want to end or re dramatically reduce. A significant amount of Democrats do. The American population, I think it's a, sh a small majority want to, to pull, pull the rug. You know, we've done enough. What's it got to do with us, Gov? Um, and I don't think the argument about what it has got to do with them has been articulated properly. Um, so yeah, I, th I think you're right either way, but it's about the, how long it would take. Because if it's Biden, um, and they, they get the 60 billion or however, and they, everyone keeps going. When they go to the table, they don't go um, on their knees. They go be able to be able to say, we want this, we want this, and we want this, as they try to exhaust the, the Russians. If they go in a position of weakness, um, what, what are they going to ask for? Uh, what will they get? So it's a case of, when they do go to the table, what is the position on, on, on the battlefield? The only thing I think that will ca cause them to um, have a, 
decent um, post-war is a security guarantee. We can't, well, we can offer them NATO membership. In fact, we, they are. We sort same, of have, yes. Yeah, they're in the waiting room, but yeah. nobody ever really intended them to come mm. in. Um, it's a bit like Turkey and the EU. They spent yes. 30 years in the waiting room. Nobody ever really intended them to come in. Um, so they're not coming in, almost certainly. And if you put that on the table as part of the deal, Putin won't sign it. He cannot sign a peace yeah. deal that has them joining NATO, because that's the raison, his raison d'etre, he says, for the war. So you have to give them the security guarantee that we will come properly to their assistance. Um, and then they have to, you, right, we, we give up this, we give up that. Uh, we're not going to ask you for reparations. But we have got a security guarantee that everybody will join us in the fight next time. And if you don't get it, in five to ten years, he'll be back for the rest. That's quite a chilling thought. Um, he means what he says. It, it's funny, you know, so often... We read stuff and think, right, I couldn't possibly mean that. Have you read Mein Kampf? It's all there. Mm. It's, everything is in that he did. That there Kampf. is that famous 2008 NATO meeting where Putin more or less said, you're moving into my backyard. Yeah. Watch that this Munich, space. Yeah, Munich Security Conference, yes. 2007, 2008. Yes, yeah. so, yeah, you're quite right. He laid it out then, yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Picking on one small part of what you were discussing, thinking about that Republican change of heart on Ukraine, it is fascinating. Uh, I remember talking to a Republican congressman about a year ago and saying, well, do you care about liberty? Do you care about democracy? Yes, yes, yes. Why do you not want to give money to Ukraine? Well, that's not our problem. Given that that is a kind of a point of view in a, a section, a significant section mm. of the American political class, what does that mean for American 
influence in the world, given what we're seeing happening in the Middle East, mm. the new rising powers in the Middle East, the war between Israel and Gaza, are we seeing the limits of American influence now really, really straining at their seams? Straining, yes, but, I mean, diminished, but not. You know, they, they are still the preeminent um, power, both economically and militarily, by quite a distance. But, yeah, because, again, going back to, to uh, 2000, just because it's a useful date we can fix, and it's, not, you know, there wasn't a... Putin and uh, Xi didn't make a date on the 1st of January and discuss this, just in general terms. Setting out to undermine the rules-based order, American post-Second War, which, which they've done. And then America hands them basically a vacuum into which they can go. Because after 9-11, what do the Americans do? Almost all of their bandwidth, economic, military, political, diplomatically, is aimed at Iraq. And then, sorry, Afghanistan, and then Iraq. For 20 years, they have put nearly all their bandwidth into something that actually strategically isn't that important. Mm. Iraq and Afghanistan, they are not strategically important to the United States of America particularly, and yet everything went there. And in that 20 years, all this other stuff happened. Um, so, and and that, has allowed, that has diminished their influence and power and because the Russians have moved into Africa and so have the Chinese and, uh, and, else, and elsewhere and the Belt and Road was, was rolled out. So I, I don't think they can get back what they had. Um, when it comes to explaining Ukraine, I don't think the case has been made that, all right, you say you're pivoting to, to, to Asia, to the Pacific, and with all that that would entail. But the case hasn't been made that if you give up on your democratic allies and friends that are in Europe, um, do you really think your allies in Pacific are going to stand, are going to trust you? Because they really aren't. Um, it's another, perhaps we can move on to China, Taiwan later, but it's the same argument with Taiwan. They won't say whether they will or won't fight, the strategic ambiguity on that. In the event that it came to it, and I don't think it will, by the way, I don't think there will be an invasion of, of Taiwan this decade. I've been arguing that for four years. So you don't got... think she would want to seal up his legacy, as it were? Um, I think he'd love to, but we can... let's try and yes, come back right. to yes. that, sorry, because I'm gonna, I've lost yes. my train of thought already sorry, in Ukraine. Sorry. But if they didn't fight for Taiwan, at that point, what is the point of being an American ally? The Philippines might as well switch to China. South Korea might as well say, your troops can go home. Japan might even go nuclear. There's all sorts of ramifications. And it's tied also to Ukraine, because if you give up and you allow this victory there, how emboldened is she to act the way they want throughout the South China Sea and the international sea lanes enormously uh, and to prod uh, somewhere? And there's another one as well, which is um, big theory stuff, but the, yes, the Americans came to aid help us in 1917, when they weren't sure who was going to win. It took them three years. That's not a um, complaint. And then they came back again in, in, in uh, 44, 41. Um, and then they came back in the Cold War. And partially, you could argue, a little bit in Ukraine. The reason every single time is that America does not want one massive dominant power in Europe. Because if there's one dominant power, Nazi Germany, which has reached the shores of the Atlantic and is now looking where to go next, mm. 
It's pretty obvious. So the Americans come to Europe and help it at a time to make sure that no one major power, Russia, Soviet Union, Germany, can dominate it, because then it could be a rival to them. Um, and that case is not made uh, to, to the American people about what, what's in it for them. In a modern context, though, if you look at the efforts of the Biden administration to try and broker some sort of deal in the Middle East, given where we are now in this conflict between Israel and Gaza, it, it doesn't appear to have gone well. Netanyahu doesn't want to listen, which is extraordinary. Uh, you know, he feels he doesn't feel the need to listen to an American president. I'm back to the clock. Um, which reminds me, I remember when we were in Afghanistan, the big saying was, um, uh, the, the Afghan, this is credited to the Taliban, you've got the watches, we've got the time. Mm. Which, was, which was, you know, there's so much in that sentence. So, it's, it's really complicated and also sensitive. Hamas has always worked. We've moved on, yeah? We've moved. Yes, let's, okay. let's move Hamas on. I mean, has, we could keep talking yeah. on the other thing for the next few days. Hamas probably. has always priced in how many thousands of civilians it will get killed. Yeah. Whenever it does something in Israel, it knows, all right, you know, we've managed to kill 20 Jews. We know there's going to be 2,000 civilians die, but it's worth it. They price it in every time because it happens every single time. They know it's going to happen. They do that knowing that that will happen. You cannot argue against that. In fact, I was once uh, talking to a senior Hamas commander. I was in his car driving through Gaza and I kept looking up to see if there was a drone. But it was a very calm, calm time. And he said to me, you just don't understand us because you're Western. We will sacrifice the youth of every generation for 100 years because we know that within that time we will win and all this sacrifice will be worth it. So they will sacrifice every generation. They believe it's worth it because they don't think same way. So they factored it in. But I do believe that the leadership, even in Qatar, but certainly in Gaza itself, Sinwar, the, the military commander, is a very good example, despite... It's a funny thing about Sinwar. He was in an uh, Israeli hospital 15 years ago, and they um, cured his cancer and put him back together and um, shunted him back, only for him to lead this massacre. But he, I don't think he's a very sophisticated character. So what he didn't factor in is that if they do to the level that they did on October 7th, it's not just four weeks, six weeks, 2,000, 8,000 dead. I don't think he realised that the scale of what happened, that the scale of what came back at them, and I'm not justifying one way or the other, I'm just explaining some of the rationales. If you're going to have the greatest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust... Do you really think? This is what I mean. He doesn't. He's not sophisticated enough to understand. Mm. He's secondly. So first of all, he thinks, "Oh well, it'll be over in a month." No, it won't. So they've overplayed their hand oh, enormously. Secondly, do you really think Hezbollah are going to burn all their 150,000 rockets for you? Mm. Because the only thing, no, the safety net for Iran is 150,000 Hezbollah rockets, which they paid for in Lebanon. I'm not saying Israel is about to attack Iran, but if it did, those 150,000 rockets would come into Israel. And these are guided missiles, some of them. They're proper missiles. Um, so that's their safety net. They're not going to burn them for Hamas. So this complete d lack of understanding of the, the wider dynamics. And then this brings me to time. 
So if you think it's going to be in an, over in a month and you're going to lose 1,000 of your men and 8,000 civilians, but you haven't factored in that this time, the clock that begins to tick from the day of the first Israeli action, and I, you, know, you never know how long, is it going to be three weeks before the Americans say, stop, six weeks? That's what is usually somewhere between those two dates. No, that's a different clock. Don't you understand? We're not on that clock anymore. Four months down the road, I think, and prove me wrong in, within six weeks, I think that we're now within about six weeks of it ending. Um, but what does ending even mean? Well, all right, all right uh, six weeks to the end of major combat operations. We can come back to the day after later. Which brings me to the... Sorry, it's a very long answer, but it's I a know, very... I know, it's a bit complicated it's, it's, issue. Yeah, it's a very... That. Yeah, it brings me to the US resolution that, that is now um, being drafted at, at the UN. Um, up until now, the Americans have never said, put the word ceasefire in a resolution. They've had two resolutions go through, they vetoed some others, but the word ceasefire wasn't in it. Mm -hmm. This time, the week after Biden said, you've gone over the top, which... You know, if you're on one side of this argument, that's weak language. If you're on the other side of the argument, the Israeli and American, that's actually quite tough, strong public language. From a, especially from a president yes. who has you know, it, really... It has weight. It's, it's a signal. Yeah. And the putting the word ceasefire... This, this draft isn't in blue yet. Um, sorry, uh, when, a, when a resolution goes into blue, it's almost in its final iteration before it goes to a vote. So it's not in blue yet. So it's still being drafted. The American Resolution uses the word ceasefire for the first time. That is a huge warning sign to the Americans. That's what it means. It does say uh, ceasefire as soon as it's practical and all the hostages are released. So, you know, there's still a lot of wiggle room there. But they've moved. And that, to me, is the signal that... Last bit of this argument before we go to the day after. Rafa. Israel has destroyed 18 of the 26 Hamas brigades. Uh, there's about 1,500 in each brigade. So there's still 8,000, 9,000 fighters crammed into Rafah. Most of the leadership will be there. Most of the surviving hostages will, will be there. Um, and the, they've got two weeks until Ramadan, March the 11th, the 10th, because the Israelis have said that's the deadline. Um, the Americans have told them, can you please get your plan in order? Mm. How to get people out of the way? And we could talk about that, the topography of its flat land, the scrubland, just there's Egypt border, there's Rafa at the end of it. Go a kilometer down towards the sea and then up the road and you come to scrubland. You could get some people in there. There's some, they've got some lovely, had some lovely water parks in Gaza. There's a water park just up the road, which has some high-end hotels and restaurants and things in it, which, again, could be used. Yeah, th there's a way of doing it, and they'll screen uh, all the men coming out. Uh, they have face recognition, they have uh, dogs to sniff for traces of explosives. They have, they have gold sorts, of that, which means that most of the homeless guys are going to have to stay put. If this happens, in they go. Uh, and most of the buildings in Rafa are not bigger than five stories high. Whereas in Gaza and Khan Yunus, you know... Lots of high rises. Yeah, mul multiple tower blocks. Incredibly dangerous because there's a line of sight of snipers means that you're going very slowly. And then when you get in, checking every single floor, it takes forever. So this will be quicker. So I think if, if 
they go in. I mean, they might not. If they go in, in a couple of weeks, it'll take four, five, six weeks. And at that point, major combat operation. They've taken every urban area. They've uh, killed um, at least half of the fighters. They've captured thousands. Um, and at that point, the next phase begins. Before we move on to the next stage, just to remind you, will be a chance for you to ask your questions, and there's lots we haven't covered, so I'm sure you've got lots of questions. Uh, do, if you're online, feel free to send them. Uh, and also, you should tweet. I didn't mention that. Or, or put your thing on X. Is that what it's called now? I find it really all confusing. Uh, using the hashtag IQ2. So, the day after, defeating Hamas, taking out the leadership, they are some of the aims that are comprehensible. They'll do that. Oh, sorry, carry on. I was just going to say, who else will want to have a stake in this? How much should we look at Saudi Arabia, Qatar? How much are all these countries yeah. also going to want to...? Um, I think most, most of us will agree you can't defeat an idea like that. So the idea of Hamas will, will survive. You can just call it something else or it'll, it'll go underground. As long as the Israelis are there, they will be subject to numerous attacks, you know, suicide bombings, whatever. Um, as long as they're there. Um, so they want to get out. Um, PA? I mean, nobody respects the PA. Not, not even Fatah, they, they are the PA. Um, Abbas is 18 years, president without an election and old. Um, the West Bank people don't like Fatah anymore. Um, it's, it's hard to see... And anyway, but is there a potential leadership in the in in the wings? Is there a younger generation? I something I genuinely know nothing really. about. Well, there are one or two, there are one or two figures around, but um, uh, they they are so riven with different factions, not just Hamas, um, PA, uh, uh, and PLO. And e even if you could find these people, Israel's desire for security is going to make it really hard to convince a really traumatised public that oh, they can gosh, live yeah. next to this Palestinian, erstwhile Palestinian well, yeah, state. I mean, this is why I actually think there's three scenarios. One, everybody falls in love with each other and lives in peace and happiness forever after. <laughs> Two, two-state solution. And they, you know, have a relationship. Mm. Which is what is going to be tried, and I can go through um, iterations of it. And then there's the most likely scenario, I think, which is they go back, the Israelis, to managing the situation again. I was in Beirut in 2006 for the Hezbollah-Israel uh, war. The Israelis bought themselves 10 years of peace, of quiet, up in the northern border. By the way, something like um, 60,000 of their population are still in hotels. I mean, I'm not comparing the scale of suffering but the strain on the Israeli economy is another factor in getting this done. Um, you know, all the vineyards and fields, and the, they're all uh, empty. But, but won't there be people in Israeli society who now believe that Netanyahu's strategy, which has been for the last 20 years, I'm keeping you safe, guys, yeah. that that has failed? This they... is the big thing this year, because the Israeli election will be held as soon as they can, as soon as this is finished, because, the, you know... Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole, all these moving parts are moving here. Yeah. Um, okay, briefly on the Israelis. We will get an idea in the election of whether the peace camp can grow again, because it's been shrunk over the years. 
uh, and people that would back a two-state solution with various conditions can, can come back to power. I doubt it, but it's possible. On the other side, the two-state solution will be led by the Saudis, probably, holding the carrot of normalization of relations with Israel, which makes economic sense brilliantly for both of them, uh, and uh, militarily as well, because vis-a-vis -vis Iran, because this is the Iranian strategic nightmare, their biggest Arab foe and their biggest uh, military foe suddenly. So you have to get past the internal politics of the two countries as well as the external politics, which is why I think you'll go back to managing the situation. Sorry. A complicated picture. There's lots more to ask about that. I am going to move on because I want to make sure we, we cover lots of ground. So if you've got questions on that, please do ask them. Uh, just to think then, to go back to your original thesis, there is a real neatness to the idea that geography matters, it's a major force in, in international relations and so on. But given, say, something like climate change or technology, is there a danger in overstating the importance of geography? No. Uh, no, no. It just changes which bits of geography are important. We no longer think the areas where the coal is are overwhelmingly important, but the areas where the oil was became very important. Mm. Now the areas where the lithium is become, so the lithium triangle in Latin America, people are focusing it on it like a laser. It wasn't very important before. There's a copper belt that runs down the whole of North, uh, North and South America. If you do maps that have different metals in different colors, you can see starting in Alaska, along the coast, going in about 10, several miles. The entire coastline all the way down to Argentina, copper. So they become more important. So it only changes what, you know, it's still geography. Bangladesh, if you're talking about climate change, Bangladesh, as you know, sort of looks like that. And that's all the land and then the rivers in between them. Each year, the sea comes up a bit higher, overflows the rivers, salinates the land, carp have any crops, people move. That's, that's geography. And on technology, again, that simply changes the, um, what, which bits are more important. Um, the British couldn't have pulled off the Falkland Islands uh, victory without Ascension Island. You know, it's a staging place, yeah, you, you need You need bits of concrete all over the world mm. still. Okay, so the Americans can take off now from uh, America and fly halfway around the world. Um, but it's, they're still, you're still looking at distance and climatic conditions. And it's, it's always a factor. I was in uh, Afghanistan um, with the Northern Alliance trying to get down to Kabul um, after 9-11. And um, we thought we were going and a sandstorm blew up. And for three days, we just sort of yeah. huddled in these <laughs> mud huts that were melting. Um, and the Americans couldn't see a thing. Not a thing. So geography, you know, it, it, it's always a factor. It's just that it changes as um, our technology changes. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting to dig into as an early access listen for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.